La philosophie dans le boudoir is dated around 1795, as you know, of course, shortly after the end of the terror, during which Saad was imprisoned in the ex-convent at Picpus, to which the guillotine had recently been moved from the Place de la Concorde because of complaints about the smell of blood. The work was begun during his imprisonment there in 1794, following his arrest by Robespierre for political moderation and alleged royalist sympathies. From his cell, he had a clear view of this new and efficient method of dispatching large numbers of the condemned. The executed were buried in their thousands in the grounds of the prison. Saad watched this bloody slaughter day after day and declared in correspondence that it affected him greatly. Against the backdrop of these horrific events in Saad's own life, the cruelties of boudoir take on a highly ironic character. This sexually obscene dialogue in conjunction with the intercalated pamphlet Français encore un effort si vous voulez être républicain alludes to and distinguishes itself from what Slavoj Žižek after Freud calls the obscene superego double of the public law in that the terror can be said to be the obscene underside or excess of a revolution arising from legitimate demands. In pursuit of my contention that real obscenity lies outside the boudoir, I shall read Saad's revolutionary text through a number of related binary oppositions, in particular on stage, off stage, and low, high, emphasizing the work's political subversiveness and gay anarchy. I shall argue that the entire dialogue can be read on a political level as inverting all hierarchies in ironic echo of the revolution. Throughout Saad's libertine works, there is evidence of a carnivalesque spirit, which in his well-known study, Rabelais and his world, Mikhail Bakhtin had identified as a rehabilitation of the flesh, characteristic of the Renaissance in reaction against the ascetic Middle Ages, but which he had declared virtually absent from the Enlightenment, a period he considered too abstract to understand Rabelais properly. Voltaire, for example, accused Rabelais of writing only while eating and drinking. Although Bakhtin makes no reference to Saad in his study, it has been persuasively argued, notably by Annie Lebrun, that exceptionally among 18th century philosophers, Saad brings the body back into philosophy. In addition to, and in some measure as a consequence of its focus on the body, the carnivalesque also has a politically subversive impact that depends on the inversion of official hierarchies, replacing high with low culture. That's quoting Bakhtin. As opposed to the official feast, one might say that carnival celebrates temporary liberation from the, preva the prevailing truth of the established order. It marks the suspension of all hierarchical rank, privileges, norms and prohibitions. Carnival was the true feast of time, the feast of becoming, change and renewal. It was hostile to all that was immortalized and complete. End of quotation. This inversion is accompanied by what Bakhtin calls grotesque realism, deflating pomposity and overweening pretensions to superiority. Bakhtin again. The essential principle of grotesque realism is degradation, that is, the lowering of all that is high, spiritual, ideal, abstract, 
It is a transfer to the material level, to the sphere of earth and body, in their indissoluble unity. Now, the reversal of high and low aptly describes Sard's dialogue at all significant levels. Both the work's subtitle, Ou les instituteurs immoraux, and epigraph, La mer en prescrira, rather than proscrira, la lecture à sa fille, announce its intention to turn the world upside down. Ostensibly, though, as we shall see far from exclusively, the objectives of the education of young women. Saad inverts the process of bourgeois education, according to which the child is cleaned up and the lower body strictly regulated. Saad's immoral mentors replace Rousseau's moral pedagogues. The unmentionable becomes not only mentionable, but de rigueur. The lower functions are made manifest in a language that is performative throughout, as Eugénie is given a theoretical and practical lesson in all aspects of sexual pleasure. Um, this is one of the notes. Given the work's dramatic form, this performativity is literal as well as linguistic, and at times ironically self-referential. The Chevalier's climax is described by Dolmancé as a dénouement, for example. I won't read all the notes, but just, just one or two that seem to me uh, relevant. As in Bartine's reading of Rabelais, um, the focus of philosophical thinking in Boudoir is thus displaced from the mind to the body. This reversal is accompanied by a savage black comedy that corresponds closely to Bartine's definition of grotesque realism as a positive political force. Grotesque realism depicts the body as, quote, multiple, bulging, over or undersized, protuberant and incomplete. The openings and orifices of this carnival body are emphasized, not its closure and finish. Lower regions, belly, legs, feet, buttocks and genitals given priority over its upper regions, head, spirit, reason, unquote. These features are clearly present in Saad's dialogue in which the opening up of the sexed body is pursued in vulgarly, vulgarly comic vein with a close focus on the genitals. For example, in graphic description, uh, descriptions of penis size and the distances sperm is thrown. Carnivalesque inversion is also one of the principal drivers of plot and character in boudoir. As daughters become lovers, valets and gardeners are allowed to seek pleasure alongside their masters. Children are given authority over their parents. The education of the genitals is privileged over that of the mind or soul, the material over the spiritual, pleasure over procreation, anus over vagina, father over mother, vice over virtue, the supreme body over the supreme being, God has made in man's image rather than the reverse, and of course pain over or rather for pleasure. An off-scene minor character, the gardener, Augustin, becomes an on-scene principal in one of the work's key scenes, participating actively in the deflowerment of Eugenie, the work's set-piece inversion, as purity is turned into impurity and virgin becomes whore. Eugenie is being trained as a sex terrorist who will be sent into the world to initiate a sexual revolution in place of a bloody one. It is above all in Dolmancé's dirty treatment of Madame de Mistival 
that the low is forced into the open, the repressed to return. Alongside the assertion of the, of the daughter's sexual rights over the, those of her mother, it is the basest member of the rabble, Lapierre, who is instructed to sully this well-bred lady from the ruling classes. The description of the well-endowed but pox-ridden valet, distillant le virus et rongé d'une des plus terribles véroles qu'on ait encore vues dans le monde, couples sexual potency with the abjection of disease. La pierre is a deadly weapon, cocked and ready to fire. Thus, at the level of social class and in ironic replication of the revolution, the high is in this further sense assaulted by the low. Mistival's disgust, moreover, is subverted, eroded, and so challenged through a form of linguistic recategorization that reformulates low in terms of high. Augustin's tearing off of her clothes is described by Dolmancé as the service of a chambermaid. Eugenie's rape of her mother is not a rape, but a husbanding. Venez, belle maman, que je vous serve de mari. While Lapierre's infection of her with the pox is jocularly stood on its head by Dolmancé as a cure for Lapierre. Lapierre, foutez cette femme-là, elle est extraordinairement saine, cette jouissance peut vous guérir. Le remède n'est pas sans exemple. The sewing up of Mistival's vagina is, in one important sense, a metonymic displacement. What the libertines are determined to do is to shut Madame de Mistival's mouth, and in so doing, to shut down the anti-sex discourse she represents. In this needlework scene, Sade effectively stages the grotesque body in the symbolic act of unbirthing, as Madame de Mistival's orifices are closed, in counterpoint to the opening up and birthing of the daughters. Now, contemporary readers might well have seen in the assault on an individual mother metaphorical echoes of the rape by the revolutionary mob of aristocratic lands and property in the motherland and of the subsequent dispatch of their owners on the guillotine, with one significant difference. Eugenie's hapless mother is certainly treated roughly and given what may prove to be a lethal injection of disease, but she is eventually released and may survive any infection. Uh, just a tangential remark here um, con concerning the reader, which we were talking about earlier and the effet de lecture um, and so on. I, um, I remember that, that when I was uh, writing um, the little book, How to Read Sartre for Granter Books, um, my editor found this scene really very shocking. And I actually remember being surprised by his reaction. And I, I suppose this was because he was reading it literally, while I've always read it symbolically or metaphorically, which just goes to show that it may be impossible to police reader response. So there we are. Um, anyway... Um, uh, I, I think that coming back to Eugenie's mother, um, yes, she may get the pox and she may die, but equally, uh, she may survive, whereas Robespierre's guillotine offers no such chance of reprieve. Sartre's scenario differs from the reality outside in another important sense. While Robespierre is impelled to murder by the obsessive need to purify both the body and the body republic, the libertine's motivation is the rejection of the pure as a dangerous chimera 
in pursuit of the abject and its pleasures. Saad attacks purity as the real source of violence, inverting the growing social taboos against the lower body and its products, making impurity a virtue. The positive potential of such grotesqueries has to be read in its historical context at the level of the re relativity of conceptions of cruelty. The horror for our 21st century sensibilities of a syphilitic condition, for example, was not necessarily shared by 18th century readers. According to Bartin, again, such conditions were certainly perceived differently in the Renaissance world of Rabelais. Quoting Bartin, sufferers from venereal disease were, are often featured in Rabelais' novel. Gout and syphilis are gay diseases, the result of overindulgence in food, drink, and sexual intercourse. They are essentially connected with the material bodily lower stratum. Unquote. Robert Darnton, too, has pointed to the, to the cultural and historical variability of responses to the comic. In his wonderful book, The Great Cat Massacre, he relates how cats were tortured and murdered in 18th century France and other European countries to the universal merriment and delight of onlookers, acts that we in the West at least would now deem shocking, shockingly barbaric. For Danton, the Great Cat Massacre is a carnivalesque event. He quote, to quote him, high season for hilarity, sexuality, and youth run riot, and having an aura of hilarious witch hunting, unquote. The treatment of the prudish Mistival and her infection with the gay disease of the pox may not have been regarded as significantly more shocking than such events, especially against the background of daily manifestations of far greater barbarism. Moreover, Danton's evocation of the circumstances surrounding the cat massacre bears strong similarities to those prompting the attack on Mistival. In both scenarios, the religious bigotry of the bourgeoisie acts as trigger. In Boudoir, the summary judgment and punishment of this bourgeois Puritan is reminiscent of the kind of improvised popular tribunals that perceived injustices sometimes led to in 18th century France. At so many levels, then, Saab does in indeed turn the world upside down in this rumbustuous work. For Stalibras and White, however, it is not simply inversion, but hybridization that is feared by the cultural elite as the promiscuous mingling of the high and the low. I want to argue that many of the elements we have examined so far do indeed go beyond straightforward inversion to confuse and so challenge fixed identities, mixing genre, theatre, politics, philosophy, comedy, melodrama, and therefore discourses, classical, popular, respectable, vulgar, subverting social hierarchies from aristocratic and bourgeois to peasant and valet. How am I doing for time? Um, halfway. Okay. Thank you. As we have seen, Saad shifts the focus from a closed, sanitized higher realm to openness, dirt, and the lower stratum. This shift is reflected in the libertine's use of language as both colloquial and obscene or abusive, alongside more typically erudite forms of expression, creating hybridity at a linguistic level in the case of well spoken aristocrats. 
Linguistic hybridization is also found in the Libertines' use of imagery. The insertion of Augustin's ungrammatical peasant vernacular into Dolmancé's educated discourse, for example, is a hybrid mingling of the high and the low. I think this is on your sheet. Um, Aug- You've got to just read the hint out. I was going to say, I don't think they've got a sheet. <laughs> there we go. I'll just pause. Okay. Apologies for that. Okay, so this is um, the only quotation on the sheet, I think. Um, Augustin, ma fille, madame, vous dites pourtant quelquefois comme ça que je commence à pas mal, si mal aller à présent. Euh, et à ne pas si mal aller à présent. Et quand il y a du terrain en friche, c'est toujours à moi que vous le donnez. Dolman s'est riant. Ah, charmant, charmant, le cher ami. Il est aussi franc qu'il est frais, montrant un génie. Augustin, voilà une banquette en fleurs en f- de fleurs en friche. Veux-tu l'entreprendre So, while maintaining the grammatical correctness of his own discourse, Dolman s'est picks up and returns the gardener's agricultural metaphor, thus moving temporarily, at least, into his linguistic and cultural universe. This linguistic hybridity is, of course, simultaneously a hybridity of class, an assumption by an aristocrat of the ways in which reality is structured by those who labour on the land. At this time, and in spite of a revolution that was in any case essentially bourgeois, any social, let alone sexual, intercourse between the, the upper and lower orders would have been considered highly undesirable. It is hardly surprising, for instance, that Augustin is excluded from the boudoir when the politically subversive pamphlet is read out. And by the same token, any degree of inclusion of a gardener in the personal activities of the upper classes must be considered unusual. Um, The pamphlet's proposal to establish brothels on every street corner where the aristocratic and bourgeois male might legally mingle with low culture can also be read as a direct challenge to the separation of the classical and the popular, of dirt and purity, as the normalization of the immoral in a legal system still profoundly influenced by notions of sin. A similar hybridity is also identifiable at the level of textual space, where themes and their associated political connotations interpenetrate. Ideologically, the boudoir is a hybrid space in which, as we have seen, social and educational differences are temporarily suspended, and all libertines democratically share pleasure at the basic physical level. The word boudoir functions, therefore, less as a descriptor of place than of theme that is, of libertinage. The absent spaces, théâtre, palais de l'égalité, guillotine, on the other hand, have attracted the least critical interest. And yet these spaces are of much greater symbolic significance. Jacques Derrida's concept of the subjectile may be found useful in analyzing these symbolic spaces. Derrida's interest in the subjectile is in the ways in which borders and boundaries are both created and erased. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the subjectile as 
The material or material support on which a painting or engraving is made. However, Derrida appears to take the word from Antonin Artaud, who uses it to talk of his drawings. But as Derrida explains, Artaud does not speak of the subjectile directly, only of ce qu'on appelle le subjectif. The term in Derrida's reading of it is therefore itself undecidable, as his own repeated and tentative attempts to evoke rather than define it imply. For example, I'm quoting Derrida here from, uh, from his uh, Antonin Artaud, Dessin et Portrait. Subjectile, le mot ou la chose, cela peut prendre la place du sujet ou de l'objet. Ce n'est ni l'un ni l'autre. La notion appartient au code de la peinture et désigne ce qui est en quelque sorte couché dessous, subjectum, comme une substance, un sujet ou un succube. Entre le dessous et le dessus, c'est à la fois un support et une surface, parfois aussi la matière d'une peinture ou d'une sculpture. Tout ce qui en elle se distinguerait de la forme, autant que du sens et de la représentation, ce qui n'est pas représentable. End quote. In Julian Wolfrey's reading of Derrida, it is also impossible to locate with any precision, being that which is adapted to receive a subject or picture, that which makes the image, the text, the representation possible. A sort of ghost hovering in the background of any text, neither there nor not there. It belongs properly neither completely inside nor outside any text, the double border between word or image and world. As such, the subjectile undermines stable representation and the illusion of presence that representational art seems to create, and at the same time points to what is absent. It may be helpful to think of the stage directions in Saad's text as a kind of subjectile, in that while such components would conventionally be considered part of the form of a theatrical work, in this case there would seem to be a conscious intention to reject and even undermine this function. The location of the action is described in entirely neutral terms, lacking any specific detail, un boudoir délicieux. The virtual emptiness of the boudoir thus hovers ghost-like between word and world, creating a semantic void which, because of the work's ostensibly dramatic form, two main and interrelated absences fill the theatre of the stage, and the theatre of the revolution. The generic identity of the work itself becomes undecidable. Can it be described as a play, or is it rather prose in dialogue? The dialogue was a popularly, popular literary form in 18th century France, and one which Sade himself often exploited. For instance, the dialogue entre un prêtre et un moribond. Moreover, boudoir was never performed and may well have been unperformable in Sade's time. Yet the work was clearly composed with an audience in mind. Its dialogue format makes the piece indisputably dramatic, and its structure, divisible into five clear sections, closely mirrors that of classical drama, the arrival and description of the principal protagonists, the education of Eugenie, which is in part a preparation for the punishment of the mother, the reading of the pamphlet, the coup de théâtre of Madame de Mistiva's arrival, followed by the climax of her multiple rape and the dénouement of her expulsion. 
The numerous stage directions imply that it was written to be seen, if only in the mind's eye, as in the following from Le Troisième Dialogue, which omits as unnecessary any detailed description of acts lasting a full 15 minutes that the audience would be able to view for themselves. Ici, Dolmancé, tenant l'une et l'autre dans ses bras, les langottes un, un quart d'heure toutes deux, et toutes deux se le rendent et le lui rendent. In any case, theatre as both a written and a spoken genre is itself an inherently hybrid form. While the writing of Boudoir self-consciously performs dramatic speech, the intercalated pamphlet is itself a written text that is here spoken by Dolmancé, underlining the mutual dependence of both. Such publications would frequently have been read out in public places. In this case, speech and presence appear to oppose writing and absence, as in the Western philosophical tradition. But this opposition is undermined by the speaking of the written and the writing of the spoken. We may therefore agree to talk about the theatricality of the writing, so that the question of whether it was ever really intended to be performed may be bracketed off. This allows us to think of the entire dramatic frame of La, Philosoph La Philosophie dans le Boudoir, one which ultimately refuses a conventional function at the level of form, as a kind of subjectile, neither then nor not there, framing the self-conscious mise-en-scène of sexual instruction within the text, and, on the one hand, and on the other, reminding us of those equally staged events outside it in the wider theatre of revolution, and outside so much in the forefront of Saad's mind as he wrote this work. The constant awareness of staging and of representation that, theat that the theatrical format makes inescapable irresistibly draws attention to what is off the scene, as of course does the intercalated pamphlet. This interplay between the inside and the outside, between presence and absence, has a symbolic dimension that is central to the work's main theme. On-stage hedonism, off-stage puritanism, on-stage pleasure, off-stage terror. Each, however, bears the trace of the other, as pleasure segues into terror in The Rape of the Mother, whose arrival brings on-stage the puritanism that drives the bloodletting outside. The guillotine is a physically absent, but symbolically ever-present space. The body takes center stage both inside the boudoir and outside it on the guillotine. But only in the boudoir is the subjection of reason to passion, of politics to sex, openly acknowledged. Crime has, after all, become part of the normal state of things as the anonymous author of the pamphlet points out, n'est-ce pas à force de meurtre que la France est libre aujourd'hui? Inverting the rule of bienséance in French theatre, Sartre brings this violence, which, which is intrinsic to the daily scene, which is mise en scène in the spectacle of the terror, inside and onto the virtual stage. Unlike the sexually repressed architects of the terror, Dolmancé orchestrates a violence that is, that is openly sexual, obscene in one of the words accepted modern senses, indecent or lewd. But the word also carries the more ancient meanings 
of repulsive, filthy, or loathsome. And building on the term's original signifieds and on its possible etymology, we might read obscenity in a dramatic context as referring to that which is unfit for representation on the stage, that which is literally, therefore, off the scene. The expression here of both sex and violence in dramatic form, a conventionally public genre, in the private space of the boudoir, renders the distinction between the public and the private, the on and off scene, the seemly and the obscene, I'm sorry, unstable. <laughs> I lost the end of the sentence there. If sex and the violence that sometimes accompanies it are on scene, represented as both normal and desirable, how can Saad's spectacle be obscene? Like Jacobin revolutionary violence, it thinks of itself as extra-moral and so cannot be immoral. This, by the way, is Slavoj Žižek's view of the terror. On the contrary, the treatment of Madame de Mistival may even be thought to have moral residences. Among its many potential meanings, the sewing up of the vagina may be read ideologically as a symbolic stemming of the flow of the blood which France has until very recently been bathed. This hybridity of form is unsettling because it undermines attempts to categorize it, eluding the fixity of identity that is so beloved of autocratic regimes. Theatre is itself a focus of political instability in a more obvious sense. By the end of the 18th century, the stage had already had a long history as a locus of dissidence in Europe. And for Bakhtin, it is a strongly carnivalesque space, partly because of its associations with the marketplace. Saad's theatre of sex as symbolic space may in part be an ironic counterblast to the regime's anti-theatre policies and to the vacuous contents of those plays that were allowed to run. Such irony would have a personal source given the failures of Saad's own theatrical enterprises at this time. Like the boudoir, the marketplace and the fairs that were frequently held there, theatres were regarded as lucky of both moral and physical corruption. The perceived immorality of theatres, both on and off stage, had long been condemned by Puritans in England and by the Catholic Church in France. This immorality went hand in hand with the mingling of classes and their respective bodily odours. Given the appalling lack of sanitation, the streets rank with the smell of garbage and sewage, and the infrequency of bathing at this time, middle class and wealthy people were obliged to mask their body, body smells with an excessive use of perfume, an expensive commodity not available to the less well-off. This, of course, as you know, is, is the theme of Patrick Suskind's best-selling novel, Perfume, which I believe was made into a film as well. Um, in that bourgeois culture aimed to eradicate all smells in this way, confining them to the lower orders, Saad's grotesque collective body on stage, shockingly mixing the high with the low, evokes that offstage in the virtual audience, where the perfumed odours of the bourgeoisie would have mingled with the unmasked stench of the rabble. The linguistic awareness of virtual spectators illustrated earlier may equally be accompanied by an awareness of their virtual, virtual bodily presence. 
Here again, the interplay between presence and absence undermines fixity of genre, and any clear division between inside and outside, bringing the social and political into the personal history into art. The marketplace in front of the Palais de l'Egalité, where Dolmancé purchases the pamphlet, acts as fulcrum between the inside and the outside, as the boudoir temporarily becomes this space when the pamphlet is read out. The marketplace has been a source of dissidence throughout the second half of the 18th century, the place to buy libelles, which have traditionally challenged religion and monarchy under the Ancien Régime. As such, the Palais is another hybrid space in which opposition to the dominant ideology flourishes, a space in which different discourses mingle and confront each other. I'm concluding now, so you'll be pleased to hear. In so many respects, then, La Philosophie dans le Boudoir is a thoroughly carnivalesque work. The inversion of the low and the high, the official and the popular, the grotesque and the classical, the punning derision of authority, the mise-en-scene of an obscene that inverts the real obscenity of the terror, transgression in its symbolic and especially its material manifestations, the symbolic status of the textual spaces and their dangerous hybridity or ambivalence in a Derridian sense. Hybridity and ambivalence are, of course, near synonyms of indeterminacy, which some critics have seen as the weakness of Sartre's political position, for instance, Philippe Roger. I have tried to suggest, however, that, in this, that it is this very indeterminacy which allows us to read the whole work, and not merely the inserted pamphlet, as critically engaging with topical events as a polemic against the tyranny of religious fanaticism and state-sanctioned murder. The cultural historian Lynn Hunt has persuasively argued that Saad's libertine works of the 1790s represent the last wave of the sustained use of the so-called pornographic for satirical and pedagogical purposes. That in these works, he, to quote Hunt, took the politically and socially subversive possibilities of pornography to their furthest possible extreme." Unquote. Although Hunt had in mind the Justine narratives and L'Histoire de Juliette, La Philosophie dans le Boudoir, in my view, offers the most concentrated and arguably the most subtle example of this process. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.